Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt Hartley, how are you doing today? I'm so good. I just heard this little quip in the news that just really warmed my heart today. It was the post of how um, people have been, you know, booking Airbnbs in Ukraine with no intention of staying there, you know, for the people who live there to get some aid. And what I love about it, it was like two, three million dollars that had gone through Airbnb of just people giving their money and Airbnb, like removing the, you know, any fees that they added. So the money was going directly to the homeowner in Ukraine. And it was this little moment of like, these people, it was, you know, anonymous, no church told them to do it. There was no really pressure to do this thing. It was just like, wow, that's a good idea to help. And people doing it without being forced to, without threat of heaven or hell on it, just doing something um, to be a good person. And I just, I love hearing stories like that because it gives me hope that it's possible, that it's possible to be a good person without, um, without the superstition and without like dogma having to force us to, to do that. And I don't know, it's just a little story that warmed my heart today. It is interesting, right? Like that happened very organically. I'd, I'd read the article as well a, a few weeks ago and folks just essentially pretending to rent out a place in Ukraine and allow those homeowners to have access to those funds. And as you pointed out, Airbnb jumped on board immediately and, uh, and suddenly the word got out and then tons more people followed suit. It is incredible. Yeah. Cause it's a real, it's an argument I see a lot with, you know, debates about religion and some people will say, well, religious people give more money and aid. And the interesting thing is like, yeah, you know, in some ways the average Mormon, for example, probably gives more of their income than maybe the average person who has left, but how much of that aid really went to something that, you know, they would feel good about or actual humanitarian aid, right? The last report was something like 50 bucks per person per year, which is not a lot considering how much money is going in. So the fact that people were doing this without, without threat just to do it, just because it was the right thing to do, like, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. The rest of it went into GameStop. In, in the yeah. stock market. Yeah. <laughs> so. so yeah, there's, there is this thing that pretends it does something and then it does something else, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. So hopefully people, uh, it reminds people me, have you seen the side. movie The rescue? It's on Disney plus it's the one about the kid, the Thai kids trapped in the cave. Mm. It's so good. You'll have to see it. You'll really like it. But I don't know if you remember a few years ago, the, like 13 Thai kids were trapped in a cave after the there was like a rainfall and they couldn't get to them. But what I loved about that movie is the whole town got together and they were praying to this certain like goddess of the mountain. It's very uh, Thai people can get very uh, there's a lot of superstition in that religion. And so they were praying to this goddess to set the kids free. 
But what saved them was this group, these group of cavers who tried to figure it out in science and they had to go in and they had to inject the kids to put them under so that they could swim them out. And they did it for nothing other than if that was my kid, I would want someone to help me. And so it was like this dichotomy of like praying to the goddess and that didn't do a whole lot. And these cavers that got together and said, this is the right thing to do. And it was the top cavers in the world flew into Thailand and got these kids like three hour swims um, out in this just amazing feat of science. And I just love stories like that. It just gives me hope that something is shifting and that we can little, little glimpses of hope that, (laughs) that this is maybe doing something that we're a part of something that's changing um, how we've done society before, which has yeah, always we been can religion. build a better world. Yeah. And I think, mm-hmm. I think in part it is happening and other people, other groups of people are retrenching, feeling like they're losing the thing that's important to them. And so that battle is ongoing and we'll just uh, get to see a small sliver of it before you and I exit this world and our kids and grandkids pick up, uh, pick up the, the battle cry and go forward. And on that lovely note, Let's introduce yeah. our new our new guest. <laughs> Let's do it. So let me bring her on. Let me get rid of that screen. And Kimber Dutton, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Awesome. Awesome. Today we're going to have, I think, a really uh, vibrant conversation around some things that are important to you and things that you're trying to help people with on your podcast. Maybe introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about that podcast you're doing. Sure. So my name is Kimber Dutton. I am the host of the Just Be Your Bad Self podcast. And it is Be Your Bad Self. Everyone hears it and says, Be Your Best Self. And I have to say, no, it's it's Be Your Bad Self. Kind of a play on words, like Be Your Badass, badass Self. But also, um, it's a, a big part of my podcast and what I'm doing is this idea that you you are good enough the way you are. And letting go of perfectionism, stepping into authenticity. And and the reason I named it um, Just Be Your Bad Self is I, I actually started out painting uh, portraits. I got into watercolor about three years ago just for myself. And I was part of this online challenge where they asked me to make $100 over the weekend just using um, Facebook, using social media. And most people were doing Facebook marketplace and selling things from their house and um, offering to do service for people. And I was, I was going camping that weekend and I, but I'm also a super competitive type. And I was like, I have to, I have to make my hundred dollars this weekend. How am I going to do this? So I had been doing watercolor for myself. I was like, I'll tell people it was like a week away from father's day or a couple weeks from father's day. I'll tell people I'll paint them a portrait, but I'm not a professional artist at all. I had been painting for maybe three months. And I, I, in fact, I brought, so people could see, I painted a self-portrait. This isn't, this isn't as bad as most of my bad portraits are, but this is my self-portrait. I can't figure out which way the camera is. I stuck this online. I did like a 20 minute watercolor of a, of a cat. And just, just so you know, we've got, look (gasps) up on the screen now. That's the, that's the so, best one. <laughs> I, I thought this was just amazing thing that you did, by the way. So please keep going, but I think these are really cool. This was the first person that booked with me within like two minutes. I said, I'll spend an hour. I'll paint you a bad portrait for 15 bucks. This is great for Father's Day presents, Pirate's Day. Like I just made some silly thing up and I called them 
Um, I called them bad portraits. And then I went camping and I, oh, I said, you need to book by, by midnight or else the price is going to like triple or something like that. And I said, I won't redo it. You pay for what you get. <laughs> this is just what it is. It's kind of like this gag thing. People went, like my, when I say people, my little small group of family and friends went crazy over this idea. And I made, I can't remember how much I made that first weekend. I can say I've made more from my bad portraits than like every other business idea I've had since, which is a lot. <laughs> I, I think I made probably over $3,000 the three different times that I did this, selling these for like 15 or 20 bucks. And wow. I realized that I had so much fun with it. And I, and I realized people are like starving for just fun and messiness and um, in, honestly imperfection. And I just told him straight up, like, I get to do what makes me happy. <laughs> you get to enjoy it for whatever makes me happy for 20 bucks. And, and, and people, people really loved that. And from there, it, it transformed to, um, I did a paint night where I taught people how to do self-portraits with this kind of style. And we called it, my little sister actually is the one that came up with the name Be Your Bad Self Paint Night. And then when I finally started a podcast, it just kind of morphed into there. So if you see my podcast cover, it's um, most of them are bad portraits that I painted, but there are a couple on there that people painted self-portraits that I have on my podcast cover of the bad portraits. And it's the it's the Just Be Your Bad Self podcast. I have yeah. to say, I've been invited to like hundreds of like paint and sip nights and it'll be like a picture of a flower on a windowsill. And I have never gone because I'm just like, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I don't want to paint that. I don't want it in my house, but I would 100% like do a paint night where like, we're just awkwardly having fun. <laughs> like that's that. exactly what it is too. And it's fun. Cause so oh, I'm so tired of the, the flower paint nights. I can't do them. I I've never gone to, to a many. paint night. I've never been to one. I've only hosted them. That's how I roll. But yeah, even if they turn out like really horrible, it's just like you understood the assignment. It's a bad portrait. And so yeah. the pressure is just off and it's just fun and, and everyone's laughing and that's yeah, a blast. Yeah. How long ago did you start it. the podcast? Because I, I noticed you there was a beautiful article right up on on the work you're doing in the St. George News here in southern Utah. And I know you, you I think you've been to my house before. Um, I, I also know your mom pretty well. And uh, when they did the coverage of the podcast, somebody I knew mentioned it, maybe it was my wife. And so I went and read the article, I listened to a couple of episodes and then reached out to you and thought we could have this conversation. But I'm curious, how long ago did you start the podcast? I started the podcast. It was another challenge. When another one of these competitive challenges, they get me going. <laughs> it was a um, in September. Um, I was in a business class. Um, for something else I was doing. I was selling yoga mats, which now I'm not doing anymore. But they said, everyone needs to at least try and start a podcast, just make an intro, put it out there. And um, I did that back in September. And I got such good feedback from my first little pretend podcast intro that I, I decided to just keep going. And I love it. I, and I yeah. love when people are like, Kimber, your podcast voice, it's so soothing. <laughs> How long have you been doing this? It builds my ego, you know, which isn't what the podcast is about, but it's a nice little, <laughs> nice little perk. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So we reached out to you and uh, you agreed to come on and we just thought it'd be fun to have just a kind of a conversation around some concepts that we think about a lot. They're ones that obviously you think about a lot and um, thought we'd see where this goes. But the first one was authenticity. 
and uh, wondered maybe what your thoughts were on authenticity. And then uh, we'll chime in here in a bit as well. Sure. So authenticity, I think from like when I was a child has always been really important to me. It's always been one of my highest values. Um, I've always was really into like Myers-Briggs personality tests. I got into all the personality tests when I was a kid because I loved feeling like I, I love this process of self-discovery and finding different different labels and ways to express who I was to people. I'm an artist. What's your, an, what's your Enneagram number? Uh, my Enneagram is, I'm tricky. I'm like either, I, I think, I think what I am is a four with a five wing, but sometimes mm. I test as a nine and that could mm. just be my LDS upbringing that I test as a nine sometimes. <laughs> you become a peacemaker because the system yeah. says so, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm an INFP. If any of you are like Myers-Briggs fans, um, Lately, I've like gotten to human design. So a lot of my authenticity like started being really obsessed with these um, personality types. And then um, I did grow up in the LDS church and I exited the church about six years ago. And authenticity has taken on layers of meaning for me because there there were limits on how authentic you could be. And, you know, I, I think probably no matter what social construct you are in, there there are limits on how authentic you can be, right? If you're someone that wants to go running down the street naked, there are laws that might prevent you from being quite that authentic. But um, I was able to stop. Looking at you, Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, trust me. I'm, I've already self-admitted. I, I look way better looking with clothes on. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to be naked out in the street anywhere. <laughs> Yeah. I, and I'm, that's not how I express my authenticity, but you know, that's you. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to, I just don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are limits. There are limits to how authentic you can be, but I've, I've really had fun um, really diving into this idea of like uh, the examined life. Have you guys seen Wicked, that, that song about how fun the unexamined life is? Um, I, I didn't really understand what that song meant until after I left my religion. And it's kind of become, and I think this is a lot what this podcast is about, right? It's it's not just taking whatever's handed to you and saying, okay, I guess this is me. It's diving in and thinking, no, what do I really think? And how do I really feel? Um, and, and really examining things like what's my, you know, uh, sexuality or uh what do I believe spiritually or what do I believe politically? And once you examine one area of your life and kind of find a fit that feels authentic to you, it's a little addicting to just keep diving into all these different areas and finding, finding what fits you, not just what society's handed to you. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I, I often think too, the burden of pretending to be what others need you to be there's a pretty significant cost there. And it wasn't until I started going like, you know what? I'm just going to be me and people can take it or leave it. And all of a sudden you, I just felt much lighter. I felt like life is much more pleasant, uh, even at the risk of shame, even at the risk of uh, rejection, life is much more pleasant when you get to be a larger portion of your authentic self and that burden, whatever that weight is, it just tends to go away. I think we've gotten to see some of that change in you, Bill, because just of all the people who are on social media and, and due to like your work in this space, you're on social media a fair amount. I, I would say that, you know, the you that you are on social media is the you like is that's Bill like in person or online. There's really not a, di a lot of difference. 
um, whatever you post and, and you'll get pushback from both sides and you still just keep posting you. And I wouldn't say that you started out that way when you were first on social media, it was more about, you know, building bridges and how can I get this message across in a way that will be received better. And it was a little bit more tiptoeing and, um, you know, of all the people who are on social media, I feel like you're really like, that's who you are, how you are online is how you are in person, which is really beautiful, like kind of getting to see that um, change in your social in in just how you're interacting with the world. But my question is, does that ever happen for people? Um, just like naturally, like they're just going along and they fit in their little world and they just try, I'm just going to add some more authenticity. Because I feel like with almost every person I know that break into authenticity comes because that box isn't fitting and it's hurting, right? And you have to break open and it's painful. It's very painful. And is that really the only way to go about breaking open into authenticity is you're going to have to break a little bit and it's going to be painful and you're going to be pushing up against a box and that's going to be causing a lot of tension. I mean, is that the only way that this happens? It's a really good question to think about. Um, I never on my podcast pretend to be like the authenticity expert. I'm very much on my own journey. Um, but I have connected with a lot of authentic people and, and I think as far as, is there, is there no other way I don't know. I guess it depends how deeply authentic you want to be, right? Um, I, I do know people who it doesn't, it seems to me like it does come maybe a little more naturally to them. Um, maybe their authenticity fits in in the prescribed boxes a little better. Um, I, I found it interesting that um, a lot of the people that I feel drawn to, to, to invite to my podcast are people who are, um, LGBTQ because they have gone through that process, right? Yeah, they have to, you have to. And, and there's certain things like with your religion, sometimes politics. Um, my, my little sister, I never went through like a rebellious stage. I'm, I think I'm just maybe, you know, you can see my porn shoulders, right? I just hosted this like reclaiming female sexuality retreat with Natasha. Helper. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to like get more comfortable with my, my rebellious side. My little sister was rebellious since she was like three. She, she was very much her own person. Did she have to break through some boxes? Yes. A lot. But did she have a lot of pushback and resistance from systems and parents uh, yeah, she got labeled the black sheep, the rebellious one. And in that sense, maybe some people are born into the world with a little bit more of that, like, I'm going to do my own thing and, you know, screw the rest of you because this is who I am. Um, I, and, I, and I don't know that she had to go through the same process. It, it's different for every person, I guess. I, I'm a major, major per- perfectionistic, people pleaser, goody two-shoes girl in the church. And um, I thought that was my authentic self. I, I didn't know. I didn't know I could think outside of that box. And and it almost was like instead of me pushing the box, <laughs> that box felt like it got smaller. And uh, it, it wasn't. It almost wasn't even my choice that I had to break through that box. Um, I just knew there was a point where I didn't fit into it as well as I used to be. But. Yeah, I guess at some point you have to break the box. I view I view any like system of oppression. 
I'm really into like, I'm getting in touch with my raging feminism side right now. And so right now it's like the patriarchy. I view patriarchy as the system that's telling everyone this is the box that you have to fit in. And if you don't fit in this box, then uh, you're, you're not worthy of love, essentially. I talk a lot about this on my podcast, this idea of, of fitting into boxes to be worthy of love. And, and it does, it takes courage. And um, I do think you have to sometimes get to a point where you, where you're like, I, I, I just can't live like this anymore. And it, it takes courage to decide that you're worthy of love, even if you don't fit the box. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll tell you. No, go ahead, Brent. Um, what I was going to say is that you mentioned sexuality, which I think is the big one. It's the one, it's the elephant in the room that nobody really wants to touch on because there is the extreme end risk of shame and rejection. And um, most in most other ways, I can fit into most groups pretty easily and not feel that I'm compromising myself. And one of the things, and I've, I've said this in some of the really early episodes of the Almost Awakened podcast, but my sexuality doesn't fit in a box. And uh, one of the things that I really need is my touches my love language. I, I love physical connection. I I want to be around people and be in their physical space. And so it came to the point where I, I've got good friends. I go to parties where people seem to be really welcoming authenticity. And so I got to the point where I would sit and invite or bring up topics of like, Hey, you know, physical connection. Is that something that you're into? And, and so folks would have that conversation. And eventually there were people who I could sit next to and go like, Hey, do you mind if I hold your hand? Do you mind if I put an arm around you? And now it's to the point where I can go to a party and there's five, six people who are willing to give that. They'll walk up and give me the longest hug. Uh, they'll sit next to me and, and grab my hand. Um, in fact, uh, two years ago on my birthday, uh, we had a big party at my house and I was sitting on the, in my backyard. And one of my friends who uh, doesn't, doesn't, at least up till then, didn't really seem to uh, want to be in that kind of a space, walked up, sat down right next to me, grabbed my hand and held it. And we just sat and talked for like an hour. And you really do have to risk shame. You really do have to risk rejection. You really, but, but you should have the space in this world to ask for what you need to invite others into what that is. People should feel safe to say no, and you should have opportunities to be yourself, whatever that is. And again, the world, as you guys are saying, created a box where you are, you can do and can't do certain things. And, but the reality is the world could have been built a million different ways and it got built the way it did but I no longer agree to play by those rules. That's not, that's not the way it has to be, at least not for me. Yeah. I, um, what, one really cool thing as, as you get more vulnerable and you take these risks of, of feeling shame and it is a risk if it can feel like jumping off a cliff, right? And not everybody is going to be there to catch you. Not everyone, not everyone's going to be okay with, with holding Bill Reel's hand. <laughs> but when you do take the risk, you, you find your people. And, yeah. and instead of being like, oh, I'm going to make myself lovable. I'm going to do all the things so that everyone loves me. First of all, not, you are never, ever, 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 ever going to please everybody. So 
if you can really lean into what you actually want and be okay with the fact that you're not going to be for everybody. You're just not. doesn't matter how hard you try. You're not going to make everybody happy. And, and even when you do, I mean, even when you are in that really people-pleasing space and you're getting that validation and love, that's not, you're not going to feel it because that's not who you are. So the people, what people are loving, it's, it's not you. And so when you jump off this cliff into like, here I am, and some people aren't there to catch you and that's fine. But when the people are there that catch you, man, what a powerful experience because you feel like you feel so seen and loved and like you found your, your people. Yeah, yeah. It really like, you know, the, the analogy of fitting in versus belonging. And of course, Brene Brown has taught us all about this. And um, I recently had a client this week who uh, was really, really struggling. And I remember being there, we're thinking like, if I take a step forward into my authenticity, I'm going to lose everyone and everything. And that's what it felt mm. like. It genuinely felt like that. And I wish that I could go back to that self um, with a little bit more of these conversations, which I just, I just didn't know were happening. Um, and I wish I could go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago and say, what you're giving up um, is a worthy sacrifice for what's coming because I had no idea. And I, I explained this, this way with this client that he was really afraid of, um, you know, stepping away from church where you have this group of men um, and, how it felt like, but then when he went, he was like, I feel bad when I go, but I feel bad when I don't go. And what was holding him back is he had never built his own spiritual house and invited someone else into it. And so you don't know what that feels like. And that to me was the big difference. You can go to a building like a church building and we're all going to um, act a certain way that's comforting to everybody and we're all going to validate each other and that's going to be fitting in. But that is nothing compared to building your own spiritual home and inviting three people into that space and then walking in and saying, it's really beautiful here. You've made a beautiful yeah. home. That's called. But I didn't know. I didn't. Yeah, that was belonging. But I didn't know. I had no idea that that was coming for me. I really felt like I was going to lose everything. Yeah. And you guys are hitting on it. Like You can be what the world wants you to be and they will like the idea of you. But as, so long as people like the idea of you, there's this dissatisfaction that you never get to show the world your real self. You never get to, to really be seen. And so in this faith culture that we all came from, I can remember hitting it out of the park, being what they needed me to be. And it just didn't really, I mean, it worked for a while, but eventually it just didn't, it wasn't contentment anymore. So, um, you mind, I, I, you know, you're on mute there, Kimber. I was going to ask you if you wanted to talk for a moment about letting go of perfection. Um, Cause this was one of the other ones that you wanted to hit on. And mm -hmm. the ones you, all these four things that you've named that we'll try to get through all of them. They are really big ones to us as well. <sighs> yeah. So letting go of perfection, which again, we come from a toxic perfectionism culture. Um, your thoughts on that, on that idea. Yeah, I think, yeah. Coming from high demand religion, <laughs> And I, I grew up in a very orthodox, um, obviously, you, you know, my parents now we've come a long way as a family, but, but growing up, we were, we were, I, we were told like, oh, you guys are like the good Mormon family that everyone wants to be like. And um, we worked our butts off 
and it was exhausting and you never perfectionism i think perfectionism perfectionism goes hand in hand with this feeling of never good enough because perfectionism isn't i don't think any perfectionist actually thinks they ever did something perfectly i think every perfectionist feels like they were never good enough it's it's not about doing things perfectly it's about nothing ever feeling like it's good enough and especially in in a high demand religion like we came from where we're pretty much told like <laughs> you we you will not become perfect in this life that's the goal that the goal is to become like like gods and you won't yeah. get there so you're supposed to spend your whole life pretty much repenting and apologizing for the fact that you're not perfect but also trying to be perfect it's it's it's, it's such a horrible i remember when my mom left that sounds exhausting it is it is i mean you know you've lived yeah. it too it is exhausting and i remember being really confused when um when my mom first left she said something to the extent of um you know i don't know if i don't know if god is there or not but i hope he's not because then i could finally feel like i'm good enough and mm. I didn't understand that sentiment until my own exit. And it's like, oh, yeah, if there's not this like paragon of perfection that we're all supposed to be like, then we can be who we are. And that can be enough. Um, that's, how the, that's how like the sacrament was for me, for other people. And maybe this is a female thing too just with like maybe a deeper perfectionism and people pleasing if you're socially raised as as female um but i remember you know people especially men saying like oh it's so nice to just i'll just go on sunday and i'll just release all this stuff but for me it was like every week i gotta go and say sorry to jesus for like the stuff that was mine and i have to do that every week and it felt like a whipping post and i never liked it i always struggled with it it always felt uh i always felt worse afterwards than than before like sorry jesus like here's some more of my shit sorry yes. every week that's supposed to make me a better human like that hurt i went to byu idaho for that's where i went to to school um that's where i got my degree from and i remember I was like the best Mormon girl I knew. <laughs> I didn't kiss the boys. I didn't have the bad thoughts. I, you know, I was so good at the thought control and the wearing the right thing and the doing my personal scripture study and writing in my journal. And then I got to BYU-Idaho and you're not supposed to wear flip-flops on campus. You're not supposed to wear um, capris. You're not supposed to have nude art in the art books or an atomically correct pictures in the in in the biology books and you're supposed to pray before every class and it was it was devastating to me it, it actually made me feel angry that's the first spark of rebellion i remember feeling is going to byu idaho and then being like wait I, I was doing it i was being as perfect as i could and you're telling me it's still not enough i'm good like i know i'm 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 good um I oh I have to share this really powerful moment. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, Natasha Helfer and I partnered together to put on a Reclaiming Female Sexuality retreat this last weekend. So many incredible, I wish every woman could come and experience what we just experienced this weekend because it was it was it was so powerful and transformational, even for me and Natasha, <laughs> all the things that we learned. But one of the last things someone said, we did this cool bead circle where everyone brought a bead that represented them and then talked about what they're going to take away from this retreat. 
And one of the women there had a white bead and she said, I am, I'm going to cry even talking about this. She said, I'm reclaiming my purity. No one else gets to tell me if I'm pure or not. I can wear what I want. I can have sex with whoever I, I want. And I'm the one that gets to decide that. No, no suited up man in a church building gets to tell me that I'm impure or that I'm not worthy of love. That's my choice. And it just blew me away that we outsource our our self-worth. We outsource our enoughness. We outsource our, you know, our, our worthiness to, to someone else who doesn't know us, who doesn't know our hearts, we're, most of us, I would say, in the world are good people who are trying really hard. And it is it is devastating that most of us also die feeling like, you know, just filled with regret or, or that we weren't, for some reason or another, we just weren't good enough. You know, um, what my growing up, I wasn't LDS as a kid. I didn't join until I was an older teenager. And I was a, I was a good kid, happy, easygoing, funny laid back and uh, I joined this religion and it was the first time where I had experienced like collective approval and kudos and pats on the back and well done. And so I really wanted to go after that. And so I tried to be the, the best Mormon I could be. And this, this being an idea of yourself so that others are happy. So the authenticity we talked about in the beginning and this toxic perfectionism that was there, it was like, it was like I sensed that my my kids, how they behaved, was a reflection of how good of a Mormon I was. I I sensed whatever my my wife brought to the table that was a reflection of how good of a Mormon I was. And any time, any extension of me, wife, kids, job, anything wasn't the way I wanted it to be, I felt like crap inside. And what I ended up doing was something very different. So instead of going inward and feeling really uh, hurt or bad about myself or suffering from uh, negative feelings or negative intrusive thoughts or depression, I instead lashed out at the world. I started uh, manipulating my wife to and, and shaming her and guilting her to be what I needed her to be and uh, shaming and guilting my kids and manipulating them to be what I needed them to be. And what I did was just wreak havoc uh, on the world around me. And the reality, soon as soon as I deconstructed that thing and stepped away, and again, I'm not perfect. There's still moments where I, I clash, but for the most part, like everybody just gets to go do them, and I don't give a shit anymore. Um, I'm really just worried about being my most present version of myself in in this moment. And uh, if somebody that I love isn't making the best choice in the world, like okay, like we can talk about it. No biggie. And it was a night and day difference of what happened when I let go of this toxic perfectionism and when I let go of trying to be what others needed me to be. That's so interesting to hear you talk about, um, because it's true, when you're a perfectionist, you have this intense need for control. And it's not enough to control your own actions. You've got to control your environment and everything around you. And as you were talking, I just, I know you guys had um, Noah Rochetta on this podcast. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. His podcast, um, um, the Secular Buddhist podcast, 
is what got me through my faith transition. And it was a huge part of this. You talk about just being present and and letting go of this need for control. He talks a lot about this uh, chess versus Tetris analogy that I think about a lot. In fact, <laughs> because of him this last weekend, everything felt very out of control. Well, I'll give you an analogy and then I'll tell you about my what I did. But he, he says, we like to treat life like it's a game of chess. Like if we make the right move and we strategize well enough that we are going to win the game of life. And he says, no, life is life is more like a game of Tetris. Where you've got these different shaped pieces coming at you and you've just got to fit them in the best you can. And I think about that analogy a lot when my need for control starts like rearing its ugly head. This weekend was before my retreat was just insane and my my husband thought I was procrastinating and I'm like, no, I'm meditating. But I, what I was doing was sitting on my computer playing Tetris <laughs> because I needed to remember, like, it's it's not in my control. I can do the best I can with what I'm given. But my job is just to breathe and try and stay present and fit the pieces in. And it might look messy and they're not all going to fit perfect. And sometimes it gets right up to the top, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. I have a friend who's a, a recovering perfectionist, but when she was first discovering this about herself, she said, I can't be a perfectionist because things aren't good enough. Like my life isn't good enough. Things aren't going well enough for me to be a perfectionist. And I'm like, I hear it. Do you hear it? <laughs> like, um, and it's sometimes it's hard to see your desire for perfectionism because it doesn't, it still doesn't look perfect. It's an illusion, right? The perfectionism itself is an illusion that we're trying to create and force other people to live in. Um, but it was never, it was still never perfect. And so it's, it's really just all of it is just an illusion um, of clinging to order in the chaos of life. And the only way through that is to actually walk into the chaos um, rather than try to continue to order the world to make it nice and comfortable for yourself. Um, yeah. It's just you're never going to get there. You have to walk into the chaos, which is scary. It is scary. My uh, my son came over Sunday, and he was stressed out about something. And I said, I said, son, just let's do a little meditation practice. I said, let's start breathing. Just take deep breaths. So breathe in, breathe out. And I got him doing that for about 20, 30 seconds, you know, and I said, okay. I said, I want you to pay attention to that brief little moment where your breath ends and the next one starts. And I want you to try to clear your mind of any thoughts. And he did that. And I said, what was there? And he goes, there was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing in between those two breaths. And I said, that's all you are. That's, that's it. That's all you are. And the moment you become okay, that this thing called life has ups and downs and you can't control people and things are going on all around you and the world is just unfolding in front of you just the way it is. And there's very little you can do about it. Although we try to tell ourselves we have all this control. Once you let go of all that and it just is, and you are this unique individual human being who, who has flaws and strengths, you have weaknesses and gifts. You, you just got to learn to accept that that's, that's it. That's all there is. And all those little stories you assign to it, your strengths and your gifts, they're not really strengths and gifts. They just are. Mm -hmm. you're, you're just piece of the universe doing something a little different than the rest of the universe. And, and so he kind of smiled at me and uh, he, he got it like, okay, so there's, there, there really isn't anything. And so any, any stress I put on something is, 
is extra. I don't really need to do that. Now, sometimes we can't help it. Sometimes life is really tough. But um, most of the time, if we just pause for a minute and try to get out of our head a little bit, um, some of that kind of tends to go away. Yeah, I just barely finally started reading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle, yeah. And um, I've had it on my shelf forever. I finally, I was at a point where I'm like, I need something to help me because my brain's going crazy. Even though, even because even once you recognize it, right, it's hard to get in that space. And he talks about our minds. Um, he says our minds are meant to be used as tools, but we've let them hijack our who we are. We think that our thoughts are who we are, but but they're not. And most of our suffering is coming from what we're thinking. And if we can learn to use our minds as a tool that we can pick up and use, and then, and here's the key, set back down again, um, so much of our, our suffering will go away because we, we're causing ourselves more pain than anything in our life <laughs> is. What we think about it is what's causing the pain, right? To David's yep. point here, the quote that, that um, Bill just put up, I'll put it up again. Yep. Um, there is a cost, you know, there is a cost. And I, I think we can speak honestly about it, right? Being authentic isn't always unicorns and rainbows. And like you say, you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but not just that some people are going to push back. Some people that you thought were your friend are not going to come with you on that journey. Some family members, um, you know, can't meet you, you know, you can't meet other people deeper than they've met themselves. And so there is a pain there is a pain involved in walking around society and doing something different. So maybe speak about, speak about the, the cost and how you felt that. So, man, so many thoughts, but yes, there's definitely pain that comes with it. And every time you show a little bit more of yourself, there's a little bit more pain that comes with it. I think that's why I think that's why in the LGBTQ community we have the label of of coming out because it's a big deal when you decide to show who you are to people and it's dangerous and you you don't come out for other people because you're putting them in a dangerous situation. Um and I don't think it isn't always as much as I value authenticity it's not always the best choice in every situation. It's not always the safe choice. Um, ultimately, the goal is to, uh, let me go back a little bit. I, I had a conversation with my my brother about why, why do some people leave the church and some people stay in? And this is just us talking and, and theorizing, but he said something about, I think you either have to um, have a safe community to go to so, so, for example, myself, I had a lot of family members that had left that, that were in my tribe that I knew I would be okay. It was still going to be painful, but I knew I had a tribe to go to that was going to be there to hold me if I left. Or um, you've got to get to the point where you really feel like you you cannot survive in this inauthentic environment anymore. So, so the, like with LGBTQ people, it's for a lot of them, unfortunately, it gets to this point of, I just don't want to be alive anymore. If I can't be myself, then I am going to cease to exist. And and when you get to that point where it's actually safer to, to jump off this cliff away from your tribe, 
um, John DeLynn talks a lot about this idea of, was it the book Sapiens, uh, and a lone monkey is a dead monkey, right? Mm. Um, if you don't have people that are going to have your back, um, then, then you can't be authentic because it isn't, it isn't safe. And so one thing that I've been doing with my, with my podcast and I've started, I've just done my second retreat. My big goal is I want to build this authentic community where people can know that they can come and feel loved and held and safe because without community, uh, yeah, you kind of got to fit in the boxes or get kicked out of the community. So you've, you've got to find the communities that, that are going to hold you um, the way you are. Yeah. I mean, Brene also speaks to that idea that you, you shouldn't be vulnerable with everybody. You shouldn't be authentic with everyone. Like you, you should test whether folks will make it safe. You know? So if I go to a family reunion and I'm sitting around with family who is deeply, you know, again, talking about the faith system, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I'm a convert, but if you're a lifelong member and you've got family that is just hardcore in being your real self may come with risk. That's just too great. And so Brene says, you pick your spots, you, you figure out where it's safe to lean into that and where it's not safe. And she often suggests maybe just stepping slightly into the darkness, trying to figure out if things are safer than you think maybe they could be, but it feels safe enough to test the waters here. Um, so I, I do think it has to be done with, it has to be done methodically. And you, you need to be careful too, when you're on this path of authenticity, that you also need to respect people's boundaries. You can expect them to respect yours as well. That this is relationships are messy <laughs> and it's not this easy answer of like, just be your bad self. You know, I'd like yeah, it to be yeah. that easy, but like just be authentic and everyone will love you. And the people that yeah, don't no, forget about yeah. them. But, but sometimes like there are people that you care about that you want to maintain a relationship with that there are, there are going to be parts of you that maybe you're, you're not safe being that part of you with this person that you want to maintain a relationship with. So yeah, it's kind of a messy, a messy journey to get started on trying to navigate your, your relationships versus who you are and who you want to be. None of this is easy. Yeah. I do like that. Yeah. I do like that permission from Brene though, the prophetess Brene, right. That, uh, you know, that some people are not safe for your story. And so that just felt like, you know, I didn't have to push myself onto others, right? And that some people were not going to, you know, it's not going to be good for me or them to try to force this onto our relationship. And so for me, it's been about, you know, with my husband's family that I live here in Boise, you know, not a single one has asked me about my faith journey. Um, And so I just know that the they're just not interested in that story. It's not somewhere that they want our relationship to go, but I love playing games, right? And I get really competitive when I play, when I play games. And so I just allow that in this moment, right? This, this now there's something in the universe right here that is pulling my playfulness. And can I, can I respond to it? And yes, I can respond. My playfulness can respond to this moment and I can enjoy playing a board game with these people and I don't have to, you know, lay down and cry and tell them everything that I'm going through. I can really meet the moment. And in the moment, it's, can you meet me and play board games? Yeah, I can meet you there. I can pull out my playfulness and meet you there. And there's nothing inauthentic about that. That's pulling out a very authentic part of me. But, you know, it's not all of me. 
and then you become really more appreciative. You know, there's a handful of people in my life that, you know, I can play ping pong and then I can cry on the couch about existential crisis. And then we can go eat and be silly and like the full spectrum of me and they can be, they see me and validate me and love me completely naked, right? Those, those handful of people. And I just really always crave their presence because I can notice I can be 20% of myself here, but I can be a hundred percent of myself over here. And so you begin to crave those relationships. Yeah. And one thing that I've, I've thought a lot about lately, because as soon as you get into any kind of podcasting or influencer space or entrepreneurial space, you really have to, um, you have to have a kind of a presence on social media, which part of me loathes. <laughs> part of me really hates that because perfectionism and, Photoshop and Pinterest, you know, this, this culture of this hustle culture, this, uh, everything looks perfect culture is so rampant on the internet. And yet the, the flip side of that coin is also true where I feel like, um, my just be your bad self Instagram page and podcast. The cool thing about social media or having a podcast is it's not you going out into your relationships or knocking on people's doors and saying, this is who I am. You have to live with it. It's like I've curated a space for myself where this is where I'm going to be authentic on the internet. And I feel like I can bring most of my whole self into my podcast and into my Instagram. And then people are welcome to not follow me there. If they just want to see cute pictures of my kids, they don't follow my podcast page. And that is perfectly okay with me. And it's a really nice way to set some uh, some online boundaries is being able to follow the people that you actually can take their whole authentic selves or, you know, I know I want, I don't want that relationship with that person. And it's, it's totally cool. That's totally it's, fine. It's such an interesting thing about human behavior that, you know, I'll scroll through just thousands of people who look perfect on, on Instagram or whatever, but then you get someone like um, <laughs> Tiffany Jenkins who are just, you know, there's, there's various moms on Instagram that like really get honest. Like, this is what I look like in the morning. I want to kill my husband. And if my kids don't show up, shut up, I'm going to walk out of here and I'm never going to come back. Right. Like they're honest about how they're feeling in that moment. And they get, you know, some of them are very popular and all like millions of followers because it's like someone finally, someone is just waking up and saying, I feel like crap and I want to murder my kids, you know, and someone is saying it. And so it's, it's so interesting, but you have to take that step out. And I think, I think that's, that's where it's so scary for people who are just leaving the church is that the space in between fitting in and belonging there's a dark space in between those two of unknown. You don't know which friend is going to show up on the other side of that. You have no idea, you know? And so it really is a step into the dark, which is, which is the scary part. Let's, uh, let's now jump into some patriarchy and I'll let, I'll let you two go first. <laughs> uh, Good move, Bill. Good <laughs> move. Excited. I see we, you. <laughs> we talked about the patriarchy. We did a, we did a nice little group video this weekend where it's a group of 21 women all holding up their middle finger and saying, I don't know if we can say the F word on your podcast, you but can, you can say anything on this podcast. Oh, sweet. We said, fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> it was a very Amen. empowering. I don't know if that video will get published anywhere, but it was really a really nice moment this weekend. Um, So I, I mentioned this earlier. I 
first of all, I do not view the patriarchy, and I think this is getting more widely accepted. Sometimes people hear the patriarchy and they think, you're a man hater. <laughs> and I'm not a man hater, generally speaking. I, I'm married to a man that I love. And I, I, I really view the patriarchy as um, a system that is hurting everybody, including men, that says, this is the box. Um, and the box happens to be this patriarchal box. You need to be straight. You need to be white. If you're a man, Bill, you can't hold hands with other people. Did you know that? <laughs> Only your yeah. wife. Um, if uh, if you're a woman, you're supposed to be home. Um, you're supposed to love sweeping your floor. And you're supposed to love being a mom. And if you're gay, uh you just shouldn't be because that's wrong. And there's something wrong with you because this is the box that we decided on and, and you better figure out how to fit into it. That's, that's how I view. Um, I think for men, it's also key. leadership too. I see a lot of clients come in who are more like B personality type men where that forcing of leadership, like you need to be a leader and you need to be a decider and you need to be the biggest voice in the space and you need to command a room um, pressure of patriarchy really broke them too. Like really, really hurt. Yeah. And you know, and like you say, it hurts everyone. And then <laughs> for a poor man, I feel like the hardest thing is that, is that, you know, the men that I see as clients, you know, we shame them for patriarchy because they were a part of the system and they were raised in it just like everybody else. And then when they leave, there's no group of men it's not socially acceptable for men to get together and touch each other and talk about their feelings. And so like, we're really, it's hurting our men too. Really yeah. Deeply. We've brought up Brene Brown a few times and I just think of a story where, uh, and I'm not going to say it correctly, but a, a man essentially comes up and says like, men, men can't be vulnerable. If I got off the white horse that my wife and daughters have um, set me on, they wouldn't respect me. I would lose them. And women, we're, I mean, we're all part of this system, right? We're all part of this system that is hurting all of us. And um, yeah, don't be vulnerable. That's weak. Don't be. And, and the reason it's a patriarchal system is because um, this divine feminine that we all have in us, right? We all have fem feminine and masculine qualities in us, but the, these more what we would classify as feminine qualities are what have been told is unacceptable. And if you're a woman, well, you can't help it because you're a woman, but you're not as cool as a man because we don't deal with emotions, which isn't true. But um, yeah, that's the box. You got to act like what we think a man should look like to fit in the yeah. box. And, and, and well, and it takes body. 30 women to satisfy, you know, one man. <laughs> There's that too. All right. So the the thing that when I was racking my brain around this topic, the first thing I thought was even in this post-Mormon space, these are folks who have deconstructed religion. They're challenging the ideals of society. They're challenging the box that's built. I still notice male voices being prioritized I, and, and guilty of it myself. Uh, I still notice that, um, I'm trying to see what I wrote down here. The, um, notice when males and females are in a group, which voices are emphasized, which voices are talked over, which voices are dismissed. Second, notice the, notice the all-female conversation. When, when several women get together and are talking, that conversation, those women have a much different 
space to talk than when there are also men in that conversation. Um, I shared on this podcast um, maybe three months ago or so. I went back to Ohio and I was at a family function, tons of uh, aunts, tons of uncles, um, the biological siblings on my dad's side of the family, and then the in-laws. And it was all very balanced. There are women in my family who have as much of a voice as the strongest male voices. They're, the the in-laws had as much um, influence and say in the conversation as the biological children. And I, I think being out here in Utah has somewhat messed me up in this arena where because Mormonism is so control of this area and there's so many things that are kind of along that and in Western societies that way anyway, but it feels so lopsided here that even as I deconstructed Mormonism and left, I'm having to continually remind myself as I'm in group settings to, to check that patriarchy at, at every moment um, because it gets in the way. I'm curious when you talk about being in a space away from Utah, um, if, if those, those women and those, those voices have to be more masculine to be heard. Does that make sense what I'm asking? Because, because in Utah uh, and in this high demand, you know, LDS religion, women are taught to be a certain way and really be more apologetic and quiet and what we view as, as feminine um, and so it's really easy to get talked over. But what I've noticed with in feminism, a lot of times women feel like we have to become more like men to be heard, not just that women are are not heard, but there needs to be a space where women can be quiet and women can be more feminine and less aggressive and still be heard. And so I'm curious in this dynamic in your family, Bill, it, what you're seeing as far as that goes. Yeah, there are strong male and female voices. There are more submissive male and female voices. There are certain men and certain women who don't uh, inject themselves into the conversation as much. And there are men and women who do. And, and so there may be reasons for those who don't and those who do. But in terms of gender, I don't, I can't come up with an imbalance. And so I'm really, again, I, I joined this faith and I was told that my family were the ones that were kind of out of the loop and lost. And the reality is somehow my, my dad and my aunts and my uncles figured out a pretty healthy way to value each other and the folks they married in a way that growing up, I didn't notice any uh, inequality in, in those voices based on whether they were the biological sibling or by marriage or whether it was a male or a female. So I can't speak for the rest of, you know, Ohio, but uh, at least in my family, it seemed, it still does seems fairly balanced hmm. for what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, this space gets tricky to talk in because I like to be super inclusive of, of people who identify as non-binary or anybody on, on that gender spectrum. Um, but for the sake of talking about the patriarchy, I'm going to talk a little bit about this feminine and masculine energy. Um, and it's, it's, it's on my mind a lot because of the weekend that I just had. We invited um, one of the clinicians I had there. Her name's April Davis, and she is the podcast host for her, her podcast is called the Vagina Blog Podcast. And what she led us in was this workshop around, she called it the rites and rituals of the 
menstrual cycle. And she talks about how women, our energy levels change. And sometimes we're meant to be out and we have this like almost performative go out and do energy. Sometimes we have a more reflective energy. Sometimes we have a more emotional energy or a more restful energy and how we have been told that that is unacceptable, that our natural, the, the, the ways that we came into this world um, is, is unacceptable because we're supposed to be more like men. And I think regardless of when you, whether you're in Utah or Mormonism or not, that across the board, we live in a very patriarchal We still here? You froze up for a second, but go go ahead. <laughs> okay. We live in a very very patriarchal society in the United States, especially. Um, we, we come from very puritanical background, a very religious background as a country that is very um, masculine energy leaning. And it was so empowering in this clinic this weekend to talk about like, why do we have these energy cycles? And, and to talk about why they're good and what women can bring to the table with, with these different energies and the way we think than what men bring to the table. We talk about this idea of the moon energy versus the sun energy and that men maybe have this more like go, 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 do, do, do energy where women have to kind of go in these cycles where sometimes we have the energy and sometimes we don't. And I think the trick is, well, I don't know if I really knew the trick, then we'd just fix the problem. But, but there's got to be a way, we need to find a way where it's not about oh, women are just as good as men, you know, they can do all the things that men can do just as good as men can do them, because that's just another form of patriarchy. Um, it's saying women can be men as good as men can be men. <laughs> and, and what we need to start doing is valuing what women bring to the table as sacred and important um, and molding our society around that. Finally, uh, in Spain, they just barely passed a law saying that women can have three days of paid time off uh, for menstrual leave. They're calling it menstrual leave. Um, in the United States, we pretend that women shouldn't have that. Guess what? Most women have that, <laughs> but but we're not going to cater to that because, you know, women are, they should get over it. They should figure it out. They should tough through it. Same with like um, maternity leave or women carrying children or... Or yeah, women with these different energy cycles, we don't want to work through them. We want to tell women, no, nope, you got to figure out how to fix yourself and be more like a man instead of changing society to support the spectrum, right? My wife works for Chase Bank. And uh, whenever, it doesn't matter if you've only worked there for two days or if you've worked there for 40 years, if you have a child, you get like 90, I think it's three months off and it's all paid um, regardless. And, and so as you're pointing out, there are differences. And so there should be differences in the way that it shows up in the world. Um, folks should have, it, it shouldn't just be the same rules because we're all different. And, and, and to your point, we got to just get to a place where we go, look, we're, we're human beings having a human experience and every human is different from the human next to them. And what we need to do is have rules in place that keep us from causing intentional harm to each other and causing unnecessary harm to each other. But outside of that, we've got to make some room for every single person to be different. Um, 
Yeah, and anyway. I do think that that invitation needs to like include men because I think one of the shadow sides of feminism is sometimes we'll shame men for the patriarchy that they were also raised in. And then in society, there's no place for them to go and touch and cry and feel. And so like we'll shame them for being in the church and then they leave the church and then there's nothing for them. And it's like, you know, that's not that's not that's not an invitation for men that there's something better than patriarchy if we're just always going to be on, on the shame bus about it. And so what I really loved is um, just the, the invitation, like you said, that what patriarchy does is you have to be the, the knight on the, with the shining armor on the white horse and the invitation that, Hey, we don't have to support you there because that's really unfair, but you also don't have to be there and you can let that go and you can take that, off and you can take that armor off and you can be held for all of you and that men want that just as much as women but we also you know but by shaming them we're not inviting them into the process and i think that's where we get stuck a little bit in ex-mormonism i really love the work of matt harrison who um wrote this really explosive piece about how patriarchy was worse in ex-mormonism than mormonism and it perked a lot of ears and um, and it was because in Mormonism, there's patriarchy, but it's like benevolent patriarchy with lots of boundaries. And then if you take those boundaries away, now it's patriarchy with no boundaries. So like now it's hmm. all of your sexual desires with no boundaries and you're just going to be sending dick pics. Like that's worse than benevolent patriarchy because like that's like really <laughs> violating my consent. Right. And so it's it's very I, I really think you have we have to talk about it but we also have to do it in a way that it invites both men and women that there's a better system for everyone than patriarchy rather than just just playing the shame game which just yeah. doesn't make us feel excited about new opportunities i i will say i i could see i guess ex-mormon men i i, I it, it should be in the, in the date in the dating world <clears throat> oh, okay i haven't been in the date yeah. have not been in yeah, that in the dating world, that like consent and boundaries and things like that, that it was better to. I that, do that. think that because if a man leaves for like historical issues, you haven't undone the patriarchy, yeah. and now you have now you're like a sexual teenager with no boundaries, <laughs> and it can yeah. get very inappropriate very fast. I do think that even <laughs> though we don't want to shame men, it, it's one of those pendulum swings, right? I do think that this pendulum of uh, needs to swing to this space where we're really focusing on supporting women because until we can say women bring all of this awesome stuff to the table, um, until we can deconstruct phrases like you throw like a girl or crying, you know, you, you're crying like a girl, this, this phrase, like a girl, that definition needs to be changed and that might look like for a while <laughs> the pendulum is over here i totally agree i totally agree for like me too like like the pendulum has been over here for a long time like as women if you're in the workplace environment you've had sexual harassment like you just have at some level and so like i'm okay for us like be, we're going to be really sensitive about this for a little bit and because you know the pendulum's been in the other way for a long time so i totally agree and and the more we can de-shame, I mean, the pendulum is over, is swinging over here in all the issues, right? Polit political correctness is starting to become terrifying 
for everybody. Um, no matter what space you're in or how you identify or what race you're in or what gender you are, it, it's a scary space we're in because we are so hypersensitive. Um, but I think the hypersensitivity is, like you said, it's it's a needed space to be in, but it'd be awesome if we could also bring some grace. Like we're, I was talking to my mom. There's someone I follow on Instagram called The Jeffrey Marsh. They are non-binary and it is very hard not to refer to them in gendered terms. And I've used notice I slow my speech down so that I don't <laughs> do it incorrectly. And my mom and I have talked about this and I I correct her a lot when she refers to non-binary people in gendered terms because we're all learning and she gets so frustrated with herself. And I said, Mom, it's like it's like you've been walking your whole life. And then someone said, here's a, you know, you now have a clutch. <laughs> You've got a stick shift if you want to if you want to walk. And it's not even driving and adding a stick shift. It's something that you're so used to doing. And then all of a sudden we're asking you to do it uh, differently. Um, and that is really hard because we don't have those brain patterns built yet. And I think I, I talked to um, a non-binary friend on my podcast who when I invited them to be on, I misgendered them. And I felt bad about it. And we talked about it on the podcast. And they said, they said, it's hard for me too. I'm in an LGBTQ space where everyone has these different pronouns and um, I would like it if there were a app that you could practice. And they said, but, but what it comes down to is, are people trying or are they not trying? Um, because we can give a lot of grace when we can see that people are trying and know that mistakes will be made, um, but where's their heart? Yeah, I think that that is, you know, each side of you know, the either politically or also theologically of the spectrum, you know, what happens, it's really the balance between order and chaos, which is a very masculine, feminine idea across history that I can nerd out about. But I've watched these groups, like, for example, these feminist groups like Exponent 2 or, or things like that. And what happens over a few years is that it'll first be like, come here and ask your questions and let's process together. And then after a few years, the people who are maybe further along that process, it's a lot of shame for the people who are doing it wrong, right? There's no grace. Like you have to be here now or you are uh, not good enough. Right. And so these groups uh, on the other side of the spectrum will really implode. And it's very common politically. It's very common theologically that once you make the move from order into into chaos, that uh, that a lot of these times these groups, because no one can be good enough and have the perfect amount of language and um, say the exact right things uh, at the right time. And then once someone says something wrong, everybody jumps on them and, and they really do implode. Like they can't stay together because the bar for morality becomes so high that nobody can reach it and nobody can process towards it. And that's really the shadow side of, uh, some of the groups on the other side is that, yes, we need to demand and carve out spaces that have been denied but if we can't allow people grace to process into that, then we're we're forcing people to to do that so fast that they can't do it. And then it becomes what does that a, do? a new form of like a high demand religion, which we were all yes. doing, right? Yes, and more perfectionism right? required, right? Nobody gets to yes. make a mistake. 
Yes. And, and there's some forms of ex-Mormonism that act as a religion, that this is the narrative. And you don't say, if you say something outside of the narrative, you can get punished just like you would in Mormonism. So we can get really tribal um, on either side, especially on, on kind of the theological or political left. These groups have a lot harder um, of a time sticking together. If someone on the right says something that you really shouldn't say, they get over it fairly quickly. If someone on the left says something that they really shouldn't say, I mean, it can be 20 years before they're like allowed back into society, right? Because the cost is so high. And so we do have to be aware of that gray side too. Mm, love it. Good stuff, guys. Let's, uh, we've got a few minutes left. Let's dive into this last one of self-love and acceptance. And I, I think there's been parts of this conversation where we've touched on that. Uh, thoughts from you guys on self-love and self-acceptance. This is a journey. <laughs> it's, it's not something that, in my experience, happens overnight. And there's, there's two main things I want to say about it. One is it's really easy when you think about self-love to let that perfectionism take over again and say, well, I'll love myself when blah, 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 right? I can love myself as soon as I lose this amount of weight or as soon as I uh, achieve whatever goal, then I'll be worthy of love from myself. And so part of self-love is, is embracing your shadows and embracing your humanness. And sorry, my dog, speaking of humanness, <laughs> got dogs barking in the background. Um, but but em embracing embracing your your intention and, and who you are despite what you do, um, which is not easy to do. And the other thing that just has really stuck with me is I've got a friend named Anna who's a transgender woman that I had on my podcast. And one of the things she said was, Who I am is not a question I'm asking you to answer. Who I am is a statement I'm making. And I think that applies to our worthiness as well. Just like um, just like this woman at my retreat said about her purity, right? I'm not asking you if I'm if I'm worthy or love or not. I'm not gonna go into worthiness interviews with you, Bishop, and let you tell me if I'm worthy of this thing or not. I'm gonna decide I'm worthy of love and I'm gonna act like I am. Um, and to step into statement space instead of this question space. Mm. Uh. I love, I love that you brought up shadows because for me, self-love and inner peace and acceptance, you know, I would try before to do like affirmations and things like that and, and never really got there. And it wasn't until I faced my fears and I faced my shadow and I actually looked at, um, what's the what's the downside to my strengths but not just that like why do i yell at my kids like why am i why do i do this why do i why am i envious of this person or jealous of this person like really being honest about um my shadow it wasn't until i until i looked at my shadow and allowed it to be and allowed it to be part of me and named it and said that it that it's okay for you to be this way. And this is part of being human um, that I was able to do any kind of self-love or acceptance. It was just, there was a deep part of me that rejected all cutesy little affirmations about yourself and self-love until, until I could see and validate my shadow that there was something subconscious that said, no, absolutely not. 
And so it wasn't until I did shadow work that I was able to do that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, I just I just finished reading the book Burnout by Emily Nagoski and her sister. And they talk about how we all have this. Um, they referred to Jane Eyre and the crazy the crazy woman in the attic. And she said, we all have this crazy woman in the attic. And um, we like to keep her there in the attic where no one can see her and no one knows how crazy she is. Um, but that the key to this self-love and acceptance is befriending that part of ourselves. And they, they also talk about that scene in Moana where you've got this lava monster, right? And Moana recognizes like, oh, this is also the goddess who's had her heart stolen from her and that our, and that our shadow sides, as much as we struggle with them and want to reject them um, and have a lot of hatred towards them, you're not going to be able to love yourself because as we talked about earlier, you're not going to, you're not going to be perfect in the way that you, you think perfect looks like in your lifetime. But this idea of wholeness instead of perfect, this idea of wholeness you can be whole, but you cannot be whole without embracing the shadow side of yourself as, as part of who you are. Yeah. And I don't know if you're the same as me, but there were many aspects of my shadow that I didn't meet until I became a mother. Um, because motherhood, what it does to our brain, right? When you're sleep deprived and they're screaming and it takes your independence where your brain starts to think things that you've never maybe thought before, right? There's certain aspects of my shadow um, that I didn't meet until I became a mother. And it took, it took years later. I mean, like really recently until I dove into uh, motherhood as shadow work and as one of the hardest spiritual paths and it took someone saying to me that the way that we value a man going to India for three weeks to do meditation and sit on a mat, like, wow, that's so spiritual. But then a woman who's cleaning poop in the middle of the night and no one else knows because she's in it, right? That's deep shadow and ego work. How we see one is spiritual and one is just, you know, just mundane and normal. That's still patriarchy. And it was like, mind blown of like, wow, I am not validating how much shadow work is in motherhood and how it's a very strong and very difficult and very holy spiritual path because society just expects that it's natural of me. Right. And then we still uh, will, you know, honor all the men who are, which honestly, like going to India for three months and sitting on a mat, like for moms with young kids, like that's a vacation. Like that's not hard, right? <laughs> Eating poop in the middle of the night yeah. when you're sleep deprived and your brain wants to kill everything and go back to sleep. Like that's hard. Like sitting on a mat in Amen. India yeah. is like, that that's a vacation. Wonderful. That's a vacation. You, you'd pay, you, you would pay hundreds of dollars. I for would that, pay. Huh? Yeah. Oh, but, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't be like, wow, I'm so holy and spiritual now. And I've done so much ego work. No ego work is cleaning up the pill. Like that's mm. the ego work, right? And it wasn't until someone said it to me that I recognized the patriarchy, even in those post-religious spaces. I need to read that book. I need to read oh, that I gotta book. I got to give it to you. I recognize uh, it's wild mercy. And I, rec I recommend it to so many of my clients because it really just validates the divine feminine as an unseen spiritual path. And, and, and it's I think really powerful to, for me. I really need to read it. I, I think to, to bring this kind of full circle back to why I started my podcast. That's why I'm very clear that this is not the be your best self podcast. 
And actually my grandma, <laughs> I my grandma cried when she heard what I had named my podcast because she said, well, we always taught our kids to be their best self. And now Kimber has this podcast called Be Your Bad Self. And But it's this idea that even though you are imperfect and there are things about you that maybe you aren't proud of, that it's okay to show all of it. It's okay to bring all of it to your to the table. And, and I end every podcast by saying, remember, you are enough right now in this moment. Um, as your bad, as your bad self, um, that's what makes us human and humanness is, is beautiful. And if we hide those human parts of ourselves, uh, you don't get the connection that all of us crave. It's when you bring the parts of yourselves that you feel vulnerable about, and maybe you don't love that when you feel the most loved, because you find that there are people there that can hold space for that and that can empathize and that say, oh my gosh, me too. I thought I was the only one that felt that way because we don't like to show our shadow sides to people. Um, but but that's where the connection comes from. That's where the humanness of this experience comes from. And, and that's why it's be your bad self. Bring it all. The the only thing I've got to add to this when I when I was preparing for this last conversation point, self-love and acceptance, on one of the sites, there was this quote. It just said, be the truth of who you are. And I, I think when you try to be just what you are, there's no pressure to be something else. And uh, and in that place, I think there is some self-love and acceptance. You guys, beautiful thoughts. I know, Britt, you, did you want to ask anything about one of her other conversations? Um, or was that just for a future note for us? No, I, yeah, I can, I can ask this real quick. So I really want to ask it because we had one comment on the side that brought it up. You, uh, we were talking about authenticity and how doing things that really resonate with you and excite you. And the, the podcast that I listened to of yours to, to prepare for us talking was the interview you did with Corey Reese, where you talked about depression. Um, and it's something that I find really interesting is that what I'm seeing sometimes is that when you're Mormon, you have to, you know, we know that for women, there's a high use of Prozac. You have to pretend to be happy because you should be happy, right? You're, you're in the gospel, you have friends, you should be happy. And so, and it's the right way. And so there's a facade, right? There's a face, but something else happens too in post-religious spaces where if I show people that I'm sad and depressed right now, or that it, this is really hard, the response is going to be, well, of course it is because you left. And so because of that, I see sometimes in post-religious spaces where we also like to say, I'm free and I'm authentic and everything is great and it's unicorns and rainbows, but there's also depression on the other side too. And both sides sometimes, not all the time, but both sides can sometimes put on the face of being happy to show that this is the right choice for my life, right? Mormons do it because this is the right narrative and post-Mormons do it because it's so much better out here. So I have to show that I'm happier. And it's, sometimes it just feels like we're all pretending like we don't get depressed. So what do you do when you're trying to talk with someone about love and acceptance and authenticity? And there's some depression that is limiting their ability to, I just don't even remember what makes me happy anymore because I'm, I'm in some depression right now. Like how, how, how does this land for people uh, or how can we help uh, tailor this message for those who are kind of in a depression phase? 
so first of all, being my bad self here, I'm I'm very much in that phase. Um, I have good days, but I I struggle with a lot of depression. Um, part of my podcast, a huge part of the reason I do my podcast is absolutely for me. It's me finding people and saying, how are you navigating this? Um, because I'm really struggling. I really struggle with self-love. I, I have this podcast. And like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm not at all. I, I do not view myself as the expert. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not on the other side of this. I'm very much in the middle of it trying to figure out, okay, this is what I based my whole life on. Now I'm on this other side. I feel like the floor fell out. I left the church six years ago. I feel like the floor fell out from underneath me. Now, now what? Now what do I do? How do I find fulfillment? How do I find meaning? And then that's what you guys are doing with this podcast too. And I think, I mean, I, I don't have answers except to say that that you're not alone. And unless you can let people know that um, that you're in a dark space, then you're you're not going to find any help or, or growth if you keep that to yourself. Some of my biggest growing moments where I've felt the most loved are when I've gotten really vulnerable on my podcast and just cried on my podcast and said, why, why do I still feel like I'm not enough? I don't even think, I don't even know if there's an afterlife or a God that I have to be like anymore. And I still feel like I'm not enough. And, um, I, I guess I, I feel like I'm kind of saying the same thing we just did about the shadow side um, with depression is that I don't know yet how to just not be depressed, authentically not depressed, but I have discovered for myself that if you can at least be honest and open about it, and, and that's a great podcast episode. Anyone that's there to listen to is the one that I did with ultra, ultra marathon runner Corey Reese because um, he's a social worker that struggled hardcore with depression and the self-loathing that comes from someone who feels like they should know better because they teach other people how to deal with it and they still struggle with depression um, and, and how it's okay for everybody else to be depressed, but I should be happy because my life's, you know, I'm, I'm smart enough that I shouldn't struggle with this or my life's good enough that I shouldn't struggle with this. Uh, life's messy. And whether you're wherever you are on your journey, um, it goes back to what Bill was saying with his son, focusing on breathing and being in the moment and setting your mind down a little bit. And um, I don't know. Now I'm just rambling because the truth is I don't have I don't have the answer. I'm still very much on the journey trying to figure it out and find that find figure it out for myself. <laughs> Yeah, I just I love that self-honesty piece because one of the things religion does is it does pacify us from some of our deepest fears, right? Fear of death, fear of loss of community, fear of meaninglessness, fear of uh, isolation. Like these are deep fears that religion can give us a little security blanket for. And so I think one of the things that I'm striving to be more honest about as as I'm navigating post-religious spaces is being honest that facing those things without the cliches that you used to have can be really hard. Like can be like, and not hard, like, Oh, this is a bad day. Hard. Like I can't breathe and I'm in an existential crisis and I can't leave my bed. Like I've been there 
post faith transition, right? Years after faith transition, losing free will, losing God, losing all these things. Um, there are, there are moments of much more profound beauty for me, but I want to be more honest that there's, there's some hard things too, that, um, that religions had a tool for that I no longer have. And to be honest, that those things are really difficult to get through. And I'm trying to be like you, like, I, I don't know the answer to some of these things, but I definitely found a lot of peace with at least being honest about it. Mm. Great stuff, guys. Kimber, let's, uh, let's get you uh, on your way. Why don't you help folks uh, kind of know where they can find your podcast and anything else about you or your work that you'd want to share um, so that people can, uh, can take a listen. Yeah, you can find my podcast pretty much anywhere, any of the mainstreaming platforms. It's called Just Be Your Bad Self. Um, yep, there's the cover right there. And I am most active on Instagram with my social media. I'm I'm really what I want my podcast, I I I really am focusing on building a community right now. And so um, I do that through my retreats. I'm gonna start doing some events that are just about coming and and taking off the mask for a minute and being real and being who you are and, um, and having fun with people that you feel safe with. And so um, I, I highly recommend you follow me on Instagram to know when any of those retreats or events come up. And that is the, my handle is at just be your bad self. And those are the two places you can find me right now. Love it. Very much appreciate your time. Great conversation you two. And uh, as always, Brett, appreciate your company on these and, it was a lot of fun to dive into those things. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks always, Bill, for just being so good at um, hosting female voices. And we yeah. really appreciate you making the platform to make these conversations happen. Yep. Love it. Okay. You guys have an excellent day and uh, check out Just Be Your Bad Self. I loved how you started off by saying being your badass self because it is a play on words. It's It's your bad self in terms of like being accepting of what you see as flaws or what others see as flaws and and the badass interpretation as well. So I love that. And uh, great, great conversation. You two both have an excellent day and uh, check out the Almost Awakened podcast next week. Take it easy, guys. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.